0: Amen. Well, thank you, church. Thank you, praise team, and thank you, Alan, for leading us in worship through song. Uh, man, those last two songs in particular were perfectly frame our time in God's word this morning. Particularly as we see, Hallelujah! All I have is Christ. And so as we prepare ourselves to look at God's Word this morning, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and get out your copy of God's Word or power it on. If you're looking at uh, using your cellular device to look at God's Word this morning, however you're looking at God's Word, go ahead and get to Malachi chapter 1. We began last week a new series which we've titled Beyond Borders, Declaring the Greatness of God. And we began this series in the book of Malachi, and we started with the first five verses last week. And I will go ahead, if, if you were alarmed and seeing that uh, it took us the full time last week to go over five verses, and then we more than doubled our verse count this week, I, I will go ahead and tell you we're not doubling our time. So uh, you can breathe easy and rest assured, uh, but we will use our Full allotment to see what God has for us in His Word this morning. And as we prepare to continue in our new series in the book of Malachi, I want to briefly remind us of what we saw last week and then give us a glimpse of where God's Word will be leading us this morning. And before I do that, I do want to mention again that I've provided an outline which we will be following as we go through God's Word this morning. If you enjoy taking notes, uh, then I will be providing The answers to that, as well as the answers will be provided on our screen. Uh, Or if you just have a journal, you can just write it out as you go along. Uh, As I said, the answers will be provided on the screen. One other thing that I provided last week was this reading guide. If you picked one up, uh, hopefully you've been following along with that. If you weren't here last week, or you didn't get one, or you lost it, or whatever. You can pick another one up. You're not going to be behind or or uh, out of the loop or in any way if you start late. I purposefully didn't put dates on here so that this could be used uh, by at your own discretion. And again, this is just a resource. This is not something you're required to use or anything like that. And I purposefully built it to where each day you're reading a small amount of verses or adding a small amount of verses to what you've already read. So by the end of the week, you've read one chapter Really, multiple times as you get to the end of the week. So, again, that's available in our Welcome Center should you choose to use it. Uh, and as we look to God's Word this morning, what I want us to recall from last week is how uh, we pointed out and we saw that the prophets urge God's people to see His goodness, His grace, and His glory that has been shown through the generations and to respond in obedience. To God's word, with repentant hearts, and indeed, last week we saw that as we looked at the first five verses, and there we kind of saw how the prophets challenge us to do this spiritual mirror check. I I had to look for the mirror to check in this morning, but uh, we all do that spiritual mirror. We all do that mirror check before we leave the house in the morning, making sure that everything looks correct and that you, uh, you know, ladies, you make sure you have both earrings in and make sure that the hair is good. Of course, always, you know, you have to ask your husband to check the back of your hair and make sure the back of the hair looks okay. And all of those things, fellas, we got to make sure our buttons are lined up. And the prophets, as we said last week, provide us a spiritual mirror check to look at our hearts and see if it is reflecting the life that God has called us and indeed challenged us and created us to live. And so we saw how God said, I have loved you to the people of Israel. And in doing so, we saw that God's faithful, his past faithfulness gives us insight into his present purposes. Because it is in looking back at God's word and seeing how he has been faithful to achieve his purposes and his uh, will and ways in the past. That we can see how he is at work in our lives in the present to bring about his purposes and his will. And then we saw how in that one conditional phrase that I have loved you says the Lord, yet you ask how have you loved us is how the people respond so we saw how man's ways make a mockery of God's grace, but that God's grace abounds evermore. And we ultimately saw how the direction in which the message of the book of Malachi is leading us is that there is one who is coming who will make a way where there is no way. That that will be all sufficient where we are insufficient. And how God's word directs us to the one who accomplishes his purposes, and that is Christ on the cross. And that's what we saw last week. Now, moving to where God's word has us this week. This all sets the stage for what we see moving into this morning as we move into the rest of the book. As God gets straight to the heart of the issue this morning, addressing, He addresses Israel's spiritual indifference when it comes to their worship. And so our, how we worship and our heart of worship is going to be a major theme as we move through this morning, and it's going to challenge us to do that spiritual mirror check once again and ask ourselves, what does our life of worship look like? And as we dive into what God has to say, one of the overarching things we're going to see is that first thing listed on your outline this morning, that God's presence is evident when God's people exhibit a posture of repentance and obedience. Because as we move into the heart of what we see God saying this morning, we're seeing that there's a lack of God's presence among his people because they are not exhibiting these things. But the good news is God shows and points his people that he his will will be done and he is preparing to make a way through the wilderness, again, to make a way where there is no way, to bridge the gap so that we can be in right relationship with him. And he's going to do so in the person of Jesus. Now, as we look at this, what does this mean? In the Old Testament, we see the blessing of God's presence through his Holy Spirit in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. And these locations served as physical reminders for the people of God to constantly maintain a life of worship. As these physical locations were literally set up in the center, the tabernacle was the center of the camp, and they were strategically placed by God around the tabernacle to symbolically remind them that He is at the center of it all. And as these were to be very, uh, at the very center of their camp and their city and a clear symbol for how their worship of God was to be the axis around which their entire lives turned. So when God's people exhibit a proper posture of worship, God's presence cannot be denied. So this, so those times when God's people exhibited continued disobedience, they were sent into the wilderness. They were sent into exile. The Ark of the Covenant was taken by foreign countries. We see all this happening and taking place throughout the Old Testament. So for us, this posture is reflected in how we approach worship. Not just worship through song or prayer, not in just a specific time and place, but our life. How do we worship with our lives? Because it is in worshiping the Lord with our lives that we are thanking him for his presence, acknowledging his lordship, and seeking to align our hearts with his. And one of the big questions that this text forced us to ask ourselves is, how is my worship? So with this in mind, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And again, this is just a simple gesture, and I ask you to stand as you are able. And this is a gesture to show that this is God's Word is what we are lifting up as most important to us this morning. And so we are reading from Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you, priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, How have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? You ask, When you say, The Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would, you, would he be pleased with you or show you favor, asked the Lord of armies, and now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor, asked the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you says the Lord of Armies, and I will, not, I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of Armies. But you are profaning it. When you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible, You also say, look, what a nuisance, and you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asks the Lord? The deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. God, as we seek you in your word this morning, we see this harsh criticism, but good and just criticism. God, we ask that you would help us as your church, as your people, seek you through your word. Reveal to us your truth so that we can take that truth and properly and appropriately worship you with our lives. Align our hearts with yours because our hearts are bent toward our own will. God, Praise the Lord that all we have is Christ, and Christ is all we need, and you supplied that. And we thank you for that truth, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. So you might remember me mentioning last week that one of the key details that gives us insight into the date of this book is that uh, the parts of it were were addressed to the priests and the temple practices. And this is that portion that that I referred to last week. And so this tells us that the temple has already been rebuilt. And so that gives us a time frame and what's to work with on when this message is being delivered. And so we now see this morning that this isn't just a key detail for the dating of the book, but this is a main theme which the Lord is addressing in the lives of the people. See, God is communicating his disappointment with the people's inability to maintain covenant faithfulness. And he does so by drawing on the most basic of societal relationships and family relationships. As his example, he says that the relationship with God, we see here that the relationship with God is not passive. But instead, it comes with active expectations. The first of which is that we worship and glorify God with all of ourselves. And this is uh, at the heart of what God is addressing here. And we see that beginning in verse 6. As we read, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a servant, excuse me, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies. And so there's a few key things here. We see that the most basic relationships in the society and in the family of which is going on still in the nation, they're maintaining authority and respect and honor being shown in those situations. But the very relationship from which those relationships are based is being ignored and abused. That they're not showing glory and honor and reverence to their one true father, to the one true master. And so the Lord says, where are the things that are, that are expected from you? Where is my respect? Where is my honor? Where is my glory? And he, in fact, he uses this title for himself, the Lord of Armies. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh Sabaoth. And so this is showing, God is, is showing his authority here that he is the one who commands heaven's armies and yet you don't respect me. And so here we are seeing how God is pointing out these these clear distinctions in the lives of the people, that they have completely broken away from their relationship with God. God's name is what was to be made known among the nations, and yet here his people are disgracing his name among the nations. And so notice here how the Lord makes a point that His honor is an expectation, not something that is conditional. So right there we see our first point for this morning on your outline, this is our first blank, that God's authority is not dependent upon my approval. God's authority is not dependent upon my approval. God asks this rhetorical question, where is my honor? Where is your fear of me? Because it's expected from his people, from those who he is in covenant relationship. They, above all else, should know that he is to be feared, that he is to be respected and loved. So just as a father and son, master and slave, God's authority in my life is intrinsic. It is built in From eternity past to eternity future, God is sovereign over all. And we spend our lives struggling to gain some sort of manufactured authority. All of us are seeking authority or respect or honor from our families, from our coworkers, from our friends. We want respect and authority and we just want people to uh, honor us and we manufacture this while God here is saying he already has it all. So either you submit to that authority or you don't. And the challenge for us is, will we submit to his authority in our lives? Because what is coming is, a day is coming when every knee will bow in heaven and earth. And that authority will be made known. The challenge is, which side will you be on? The side who is already kneeling or the side who is going to be forced to kneel? And God is calling for his people to worship him properly based on two factors. There's two things at play here that we see God calling his people to worship him based on. First of all is who he is. Again, we've kind of gone over that, that God's authority is not dependent upon my approval, that he is God. He is the Lord of armies. And so based on that and that alone, he is deserving of respect and honor. But the second thing is, he's calling for them to honor him based on what he has done for them, that he has established them as a people. We talked about this last week as he draws on, I have loved you, and he refers to the relationship between uh, Jacob and Esau, and how he had chosen Esau, and uh, excuse me, Jacob, and how Esau had been left to ruin, and referred to the kingdom of Edom. And so here we see that he is drawing on this based off what he has done for them. He has entered into covenant relationship with them. They are his covenant people. And so he not only expects authority based off of who he is, the fact that it's already due him, but based off the fact that he has relationship with them, that he has made a way, that he has done so much to preserve them as a people. And because he entered into this covenant relationship with them, they have the expectation that they submit to God's authority in all things. So whether we submit to God's authority or not, he still has the authority. From the fall, our sinful nature has been bent to obeying our self-given authority over God's righteous, sovereign authority. And so, am I living in a way... So what this causes us to ask ourselves, am I living in a way which reflects God's authority or am I living in a way which reflects my own manufactured authority? Am I parenting in a way that reflects God's authority and the fact that my position as a a mommy or a daddy comes from him? Or am I merely lording that power as my own? Am I treating as students, teenagers, children, am I treating my parents in a way that reflects God's authority or my own? Am I loving my spouse in a way that acknowledges and submits God's authority first and foremost? Am I using the freedom of time that God has given me in retirement? Or am I using the gifts that God has given me to acknowledge his authority or my own? This is what this is challenging the people here to pray and to to reflect on. And it's what it is challenging us to reflect on as well. So you notice the key detail that we have as we move into this portion of God's proclamation to the people. See, last week we looked at verses 1 through 5. And this initial part of proclamation was addressed to the nation as a whole. Now this morning... As we move into the meat of this proclamation and judgment, we see that the Lord now addresses a specific group within the people. as He is specifically levying this charge against the priests. This gives us good indication into just how pervasive this sinful disobedience is within the people. This isn't just that something that can be scapegoated off on that sinful group of people. This isn't something that can just be like, oh, surely God's talking about those people, but not me. Like Obviously, God's talking about those sinners over there and not not us over here. No, 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 no. Here, God charges the priests as being just as wicked and just as broken, just as depraved as the rest of the nation. And in fact, they're leading the people as a whole astray because God is not receiving the worship that he is worthy of. And these are the priests, the tribe of Levi, those who the Lord had designated and set aside as the very ones who would lead in worship. His presence dwelt in the tabernacle and in the temple. And they were the ones charged with maintaining that and maintaining the practices and making sure that they were followed to the T. Making sure that everything was done with reverence and to the Lord and holiness and respect. To the Lord and to honor His presence with them, and yet these are the ones who are leading the people and abusing their worship. They're the ones who are leading the people and abusing the sacrifices, the sacrificial system, and, and not walking in obedience. And they're just as guilty as anyone else. And God puts the responsibility squarely on the shoulders of those spiritual leaders who are in charge of leading the people and setting an example of obedience to God's word. And this should serve as a sobering example and warning for us as God's people to make sure that we are leading God's people above reproach. This highlights our next point for this morning, which is that biblical knowledge does not equate to spiritual maturity. Biblical knowledge does not equate to spiritual maturity. Again, this this, the priest, the tribe of Levi, they know what they're supposed to do. They know it to a T and can recite it to you. Chapter and verse, down to the the letter and the punctuation, they know it all. And he says, to you, priest, who despise my name. Is it important for us to have a complete and thorough knowledge of God's word? Absolutely. But, and, and that's why I am so thankful for the faithful and obedient Sunday school teachers and ministry leaders here at Southside and for the role that God has given them to play. But that which is of greater value than simply knowing God's word is that we actually do it, that we live it, and that we act according to it. And that's the charge that's being levied here because they knew it better than anyone else. The problem is they're not living it nor leading the people in worship, and living lives of worship to the Lord. The very ones which were to intercede on behalf of the people to ensure that worship of God was revered and protected and lift high the banner of God's greatness for all to see are the very ones which are leading the people to even greater disobedience. So again, biblical knowledge does not equate to spiritual maturity. And by the same token, God-given position, authority, or role does not negate our deep-seated need for God's grace. Indeed, this platform is intended for both practical and symbolic purposes. It serves a practical function in that it lifts those who are leading in worship or leading in the preaching of God's Word above everyone else, so that they can be seen and heard clearly and everything can be communicated well. But it serves a symbolic purpose, not that the personalities are lifted up, but that God's word is what is lifted up at the center of the room, everybody facing it, not the personality. And that is the problem with what these priests are dealing with. As we see that this... uh, that. The platform here is intended for, like I said, both practical and symbolic purposes. When we have a proper view of our sinfulness and light of God's greatness, our appreciation for God's grace to us in the cross grows exponentially. And that is what the Lord is working toward here in this message to the people. Now, I know you're probably like, man, we've only gotten through one verse. How in the world are we having enough time? Like, trust me, we're, we're about to pick up the pace because as we keep reading, we see that part of the issue isn't just that they're guilty of this sin, but that they are, are willfully ignorant to it. Because God presents to them their obvious sin, presents to them what they are doing, and they know they're doing it. Because again, they know God's word better than everyone else. So they know what's right and they know what's wrong. And yet their question is, how have we despised your name? Oh, church, may the same never be said of us. Because we, of all people, should be the ones who exhibit and display a constant posture of humble adoration at what God has done in our lives. And this should move us to urgent action so that others may see and know that God is good as they see how our own sin affects us and moves us to humility and moves us to seek to live lives in which God is constantly shaping and molding and chiseling away at our heart to make it bent toward his will, then we should reflect that goodness, reflect his glory to those around us. But the priests here at Malachi essentially demonstrate the total opposite instead of being broken at the charge of having sinned against God they are, and, and led the nation astray, their response is one of defending themselves. But as we keep reading, we see that God, God kept the receipts on their sin. We see verse 7. So they ask, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say, the Lord's table is contemptible. See, in these questions from the people and the priests, I can't help but be reminded of that scene in the garden where we see Adam and Eve try to hide in their shame from God in a a feeble attempt to hide in their shame. And God, walking in the garden, asks, where are you? And they shamefully have to say, "We, we hid because we were afraid in our nakedness. And so God here, as he levies these charges against Israel, and specifically, as we're seeing this morning, against the priests, we see their attempt to hide their shame. How have we despised your name? In other words, we, we still do the temple practices. We do everything that you asked us to do and everything that we are supposed to do. We're checking all the boxes. We're doing it all the way it's supposed to be done. But God is trying to communicate what the people have seemingly struggled to understand their entire time. And that is that his desire for us is not to simply do what he says to check a box off a list, but to live out what he says and to do it from a heart that is worshiping and acknowledging his lordship. And this highlights our next point today, which is that half-hearted worship cannot hide An unrepentant heart. Half hearted worship cannot hide an unrepentant heart. The temple has been rebuilt and the priesthood has been restored. And as we said earlier, one of the primary purposes of worship is that we humbly submit ourselves to God in acknowledgement of His Lordship. So it's as if the Lord is saying, what is the point of the temple even being here if you're not going to properly honor and worship me? And in fact, the Lord goes just that far to say just as much after pointing out their sinful ignorance as we continue reading in verse 8. When you present a blind or a blind animal or sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. He will, be, will he be gracious to us since this has come from your hands? Will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. And so the Lord says, try that with one of your officials. Try showing the same amount of honor that you're showing me to one of your officials. And see if that works out for you. See how that what the response is in that, and in worship and honor of God, the priests were to offer up sacrifices of the best and purest form. Yet they are simply offering up whatever they may have. As we look back to the very establishment, as we look in the book of Leviticus and Numbers, and we see this sacrificial system established. The whole purpose of it is to highlight man's sinfulness in light of God's grace and to reveal how costly sin is. The fact that we constantly have to bring another sacrifice time after time. The fact that we're constantly having to make atonement for sin is a constant reminder for the people of just how harsh their sin is. But that God provided the sacrificial system. He made the sacrificial system so that their sin could be atoned for in that moment and so that their relate covenant relationship with him could be maintained. And yet, this is a, a sad parallel to how we offer ourselves to the Lord because as these priests are simply offering up whatever they pick out from the, the group for sacrifice and offering up whatever may, they may have, We see a sad parallel of our own lives. as He he provided his best and purest to sacrifice on our behalf that our lives may be a living sacrifice for him. And yet here we are, time after time, I'll try to fit my Bible reading in today. Or I would do this or that ministry opportunity, but I'm, I'm just too busy. Or I'll give toward that mission trip next time. I'll go on that mission trip next time. What is God's response to the priest's actions? Well, we keep reading in verse 10. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies and I will accept no offering from your hands." Next Sunday marks the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, or as I've heard the Catholics refer to it, the Protestant Revolt. And that moment when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or questions to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany, And uh, in his biography of Martin Luther, the author Eric Metaxas points out that Luther himself stated that his original desire was not to cause a revolution or rebel against the church, but to see these things addressed and corrected, to see what was clear in God's word, and then to respond according to it. And that this was his desire. And that he wanted them to see the obvious error and then correct course. And that Reformation movement continues today through us. As Martin Luther himself stated that the truths which were central to the Reformation were not something that was new or something that came about in his time. That they had always been there in God's word. That it was human brokenness that caused them to be hidden. And as we look to how these priests are lacking, we can see how our our great high priest, Jesus, is all sufficient to make a way where there was no way. And the first way that we see this is here in verse 10. Specifically, at the end of verse 10, here we see two of the five soles of the Reformation. That we are saved by grace by grace alone, through faith alone. As you look there at at the end of verse 10, as the Lord says, I am not pleased with you, and I will accept no offering from your hands. What this statement from the Lord in regards to worship practices reveals to us is that salvation is and always has been a free gift from God. He was the one who established the sacrificial system And he was the one who could put an end to it. And that it was something that was a free gift. And grace is something that is given to those who do not deserve it. And all throughout history, the people had done nothing to show that they deserved to be in right and covenant relationship with God. Yet God graciously established a system and a way in which their sins could be ever before them. Always present. At the center of their lives, their worship and their atonement for sin had to be a central theme of who they were. And they would go to the tabernacle, go to the temple, so that they could be constantly reminded of their sinfulness and God's grace and holiness to provide a way. And here we see that just as it was a gracious gift from God, it was His to do away with. But even this was an act of grace. Because in doing away with the old sacrificial system, We see, as Malachi points us, that he is beginning to usher in a better and more perfect sacrifice that will atone for sin once and all. But if God won't accept sacrifices from the very ones that he set aside, to do the sacrificial, uh, sacrificial system, as, he, as the, these are the priests, the tribe of Levi, they're the only ones who can do it, and he's telling the priests that he won't accept sacrifices from their hands. So what does that mean from the nation as a whole? That they're all in trouble. That the entire sacrificial system has crumbled at the grace of God. So how will he be made known? How will he maintain his covenant faithfulness? How will he has promised that he will make his name known among the nations through them and through his work in them? So how will he establish a people for his own possession? Well, we keep reading. Verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of Armies. So God's ways and God's purposes will be fulfilled to completion. The question that looms over all mankind is, will we submit or will we be left to ruin? Will our hearts be forever changed by the overwhelming grace of God or will we continue to worship the created over the creator? Because as we see, the Lord just did away with the sacrificial system, but then he says that incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place. So it's no longer isolated to a tabernacle or a temple, but now there is going to be my uh, offerings and sacrifices being made everywhere. My temple will be in all places where my spirit dwells. Well, how reminiscent is this of Paul's challenge to the church in Rome in Romans 12? Specifically verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what, the, what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So in God's words here in Malachi, we see God pointing to the fact that Christ will be the fulfillment of everything the temple represented. Instead of one temple, his spirit will now, dwell, now dwells in the hearts of those who have been made new. Because how ominous is it for us to know that in God's saying, I will accept no offerings from your hands, we have 300 years silence following this book. And then God's grace bursts onto the scene again as he makes it possible for us to be made new so that His Spirit can dwell within us and so that incense and pure offerings can be presented in His name in every place in the hearts of those who have been made new because His name will be great among the nations. His will will be done. His purposes will be accomplished. The question, as I presented at the beginning, still looms, is will we submit to his ways, Will we submit to his authority and his purposes? Because as we see here also, this illuminates our next two points for this morning, which is that we are justified by the work of Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. So indeed, those five core truths which were central to the Protestant Reformation are evident here in this text today. The same willful ignorance which Martin Luther would see displayed in the leadership of the church, is the same willful ignorance which is displayed here in the life of the priest. That is that God is—that is what God is addressing as He levies these charges, and this is that uh, this is what the work of Christ on the cross corrects and accomplishes in us. Because as we see that God here is going to make pure offerings the emphasis there is on the pure they will be pure not based off of their own merit but based off of his god who is at work here and that he is the one that is making it happen and it is for what purpose that his name his name will be great and so even here we see the five soles of the reformation and as we keep reading as we finish out the chapter we see the lord point out one more thing that i don't want us to miss Picking back up in verse 12. But you are profaning it. So again, he ends verse 11 saying, My name will be great among the nations, but you are profaning it. When you say, the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asks the Lord? And don't miss this here in verse 14. The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be revered among the nations. So the issue for the people, those words from verse 14, are a fitting challenge for us to end with this morning. Because it was not for lack of ability or lack of provision that they were offering up these contemptible sacrifices and defiling the worship of the Lord. He says, the deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in the flock. So who has a way and has been provided a way to offer up good, true, and pure worship, which I have commanded and, and indeed deserve, and yet does what? Offers up the lame, the sick, the blind, all of these contemptible offerings that they're offering up. And they had what they needed, but sacrificed a defective animal to the Lord instead. And so the Lord, as we saw in verse 11, is out to make pure offerings offered up in all places. And the purity of those offerings are made pure by the blood of Christ on the cross. And it was not for lack of ability the priests were offering unacceptable sacrifices. They had what was necessary. They simply failed to obey. In church, in Jesus, we have been provided everything we need to walk in obedience, to be made right, and to have a heart and a life that has been made new by the grace of God. So let the same not be said of us. The deceiver is cursed. So if you've been pursuing your way, seeking to accomplish your purposes, and have never surrendered your life to Christ, entering into a relationship with Him, now is the time to do so. Because the warning of Malachi is to get right with God before Messiah comes. Here in a couple of months, we'll be celebrating the coming of that Messiah in Jesus. And then he's coming again. And so the challenge remains for us to get right, to make right all of these wrongs and submit to his grace and his glory that he is due before the time is too late. And I believe with full confidence that if that describes you, that it is no coincidence that the Lord has brought you here this morning. And If that's you, I'll be down front during this time of response, ready to walk you through what that looks like. But for those of us here this morning who have a relationship with Christ, let this morning serve as a sobering reminder to constantly seek the Lord in repentance and walk as living sacrifices that all may see And know that the Lord is good and that his name may be great among the nations. Let's pray. And we thank you for uniting us as your church for your purposes. So God, as we enter into this time of reflection and response now, I pray that you would make it clear to each and every heart how you would have us respond. I know that you convict us and and, um, reveal different things to each of us, different areas of our own lives and our own hearts that need to be shaped and molded according to your will. And so help us to be receptive and responsive to that in this time. And then God, we also pray for any hearts in here who have not been surrendered to you, entered into right relationship with you through the work of Christ on the cross that you would make that evident to them, that you would weigh that heavy on them and move them to respond in accordance to your will. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.